Good morning, my name's Peter. Please join with me as we read from the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, it's on page 959 if you're using one of the church Bibles. So just turn to the book of Matthew, the first in the New Testament, and back a few pages and you'll be there. Malachi chapter 3. The Lord Almighty says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I am the Lord, I do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from, dev uh, from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence, 
concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the destruction, uh, the distinction, I'm sorry, between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. This is the word of the Lord Almighty. Thanks, Peter. Morning, everyone. My name's Dave. If we haven't met before, I'd love to catch up with you after the service or at the carols tonight. Uh, Right now, I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into it. Heavenly Father, uh, this morning, we ask that you would quiet our minds, open our ears and, and soften our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today through the prophecy of Malachi. Uh, we thank you for your word that we have it and that we have the opportunity to study it. And we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what are you hoping for this Christmas? New fishing rod, perhaps? Homemade mango ice cream? Jewellery for anyone? Maybe you're hoping that there'll be an Ashes win for Australia. We're on good ground so far. Maybe. Oh, I went too fast. Uh, Maybe you're hoping the next Star Wars movie isn't just The Empire Strikes Back with a bunch of new faces in it. Or maybe you're hoping for something a bit more substantial. Something, Something greater. A stable job. Maybe you're hoping for good health for you or a loved one. Maybe you're hoping for restoration of a broken relationship. Maybe you're hoping for a relationship where previously there wasn't one. Maybe you've been hoping that, uh, that a loved one whom you've been praying for for years and years will finally come to Christ. Whether it's big or small, whether it's short term or long term, we're always hoping for something. Everyone is always hoping for something. It's human nature. We know. We live in this world, we experience it, and we know that things could be better than they are. And so we hope for that to happen. And even if you don't believe in God, you probably agree that the world could be better than it is, right? Well, as we take a look at the book of Malachi today, we meet a people who were a lot like us. They also, they had a great sense of hope. They hoped for a lot of things. They had optimism about the future and the opportunities that they saw. They knew, like we do, that life could be better than it is. And they were hopeful that this better life was just around the corner. Malachi's prophecy shows us that, yes, there's a lot to hope for. That we can have a greater hope than we dare to dream. Now, Malachi is not a long book. It's only four chapters. And today's talk is sort of a high-level flyover of the whole book. But if it's been a while since you last read Malachi, or if you've never opened it at all, uh, here's a quick background to help us understand where this fits in the big picture of the Bible. So Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Chronologically, it's also the last prophecy before Christ. Apart from the fact that he wrote this oracle, this message from God, we don't know anything about the man Malachi, but he deals with a whole lot of issues that are relevant to us today. What's worship supposed to look like? How do we relate to God? How do we relate to each other? How should we care for the weak and the vulnerable among us? What does leadership, real leadership, look like? 
And as historians look at these issues and other accounts in the Bible, particularly those of Ezra and Nehemiah, they've worked out that Malachi was probably written around 420-430 BC, which was during the time of Nehemiah's second visit to Jerusalem. So if you start on your left, my right, the Golden Age of Israel began around 1010 BC with the reign of David. Solomon took over in 970 BC, but after his reign, the kingdom split into two. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom, taken off into exile by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and those tribes, 11, 12, 10 of them, sorry, those 10 tribes dispersed. Judah and, and uh, Benjamin, wrapped up with Judah, started to come under a lot of pressure from, Jerusalem, from Babylon in 605 BC, and in 586 BC, 19 years later, Jerusalem fell. Many prisoners were taken into exile in Babylon. God's people had been in God's place, but they lost it. And that stayed lost until 538 BC when the Persian king Cyrus, who had conquered Babylon just a year earlier, allowed the first batch of exiles to return home. Now those exiles had returned to Jerusalem full of hope. They were coming back to the promised land. God's punishment for the sins of Israel and Judah was complete and now his people were back in his land. God's people back in God's place. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah had challenged the people to respond properly to God at this time, to rebuild the temple and to rebuild their relationships with God. And it happened. By 515 BC, they'd rebuilt the temple. Around 458 BC, Ezra led more exiles back to Jerusalem and about 15 years after that, Nehemiah brought another group with him and under his leadership, they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. Through all of this, they'd withstood political an onslaught of political attacks, but God was blessing them to the extent that the king, Cyrus, had even decreed that there would be a full government subsidy effectively, to pay for things like temple sacrifices while they got themselves sorted out. So things are looking pretty good for the Israelites now. The building is complete, the people are involved in worship, and they have this great sense of hope. Zechariah had promised the day of the Lord when he would come and make everything right. For the exiles in Jerusalem, it didn't seem like there were many more things to make right. What a time to be alive, hey? But when we get to the start of Malachi, that hope has all but vanished. Chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Now, God is a relational God. This pattern of conversation, God relating with his people, the same way we talk, this comes up again and again in Malachi. First of all, he makes a statement on God's behalf. Then he quotes the people's response, which is usually some defensive form of, but, but how did we do that? Then he finishes each little exchange with a longer explanation of what the people are doing wrong, how they're not following God's law, where they've, they've missed the mark. By my count, there are about seven of these conversations through the book, and we're going to touch on four of them today. But right off the bat, chapter 1, verse 2, we have a problem. Society... Israelite society, they've changed to the point that the returned exiles no longer recognise God's love. Cynicism and lawlessness are now the hallmarks of the Israelites. Not hope and faithfulness. What little hope remains is corrupted and misguided. 
Think for a moment about the extent of social change that we've seen here in Australia in the last 40 years. How much has changed since 1977? What about the last 80 years? In a couple of generations, things that were once considered totally unacceptable are now things that we're expected to celebrate and endorse. It turns out things were changing the same way for the exiles. Though they had repented of their past sins and repeatedly committed to following the law, the exact opposite was happening. And it was happening barely a decade after Nehemiah had come in and led these reforms. In another case of striking similarity with the 21st century and our life, it was their leaders who were compromised. The leaders were the source of the problem. Only last week in the news, some of you may have seen, a Scottish priest was tweeting, calling for his congregation to pray that Prince George will grow up to be gay so that the Church of England is forced to accept and endorse gay marriage. When your spiritual leaders, when the people whom you rely on for good advice, the people that you turn to and talk to and trust, when they're giving you that kind of advice, is it any wonder that people don't understand and are confused about what the Bible says on different issues? Israel's leaders were doing the same thing. They weren't leading people closer to God. They were leading people further away from God. Look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1 with me. A son, son honours his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. The priests, the spiritual leaders of the people, are the ones leading them astray. In this case, they're telling the people, worse, they're showing the people, that the sacrifices didn't matter, that they could bring any old thing. It didn't have to be the best. It didn't have to be the first fruits. It didn't have to be the sort of sacrifices that God had laid out in Exodus and Leviticus as being acceptable. Whatever they felt like, it's all good, bring what you like. Now, this is not part of our culture, so it's a little difficult to grasp, but sacrifices and gifts were a really big thing in the Old Testament. The bigger the sacrifice, the greater, the more important the person who was, who was receiving it must have been. So, for God, you should be expecting a pretty big sacrifice, right? But just a little further on in verse 8, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you offer lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? And, we might add, if it's not acceptable for the regional governor, is it any more likely to be acceptable to the king of the universe? Now, this... This back and forth, this argument over the sacrifices and things like that, this carries on for the rest of chapter 1 and half of chapter 2. On the surface, the Israelites are being religious, they're making their sacrifices, but their hearts simply aren't in it. Chapter 1, verse 12, you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. You say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. 
there's something really, truly tragic about this. Because this is Israel we are talking about. God chose them. He chose only them out of all the nations to be his special people. To have a special relationship with him only. This is the same God who parted the Red Sea. The same God who had protected Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. The same God who had protected Daniel in the lion's den. It's the same God who through Jeremiah had promised to the exiles that he would restore his people after 70 years away. It's the same God who did that. Now, with demonstrations of power like that, does this sound like the sort of God that you can trust in? It does, right? Would you hope in this God to deliver on his promises? Past evidence is that he will, right? Yeah. Is this the sort of God you'd want as your God? I think so. But here's the tragedy. They didn't think so. They didn't trust him. They didn't put their hope in him. They didn't seem to want him as their God. Three times through chapter 1, God has to remind Mal- uh, in chapter 1, God has to remind the people of his own greatness. His own chosen people have to be reminded of their God's greatness. We've just finished looking at Ephesians last week and looking at how, as God's people, we're supposed to be shaped by His grace, poured out on us in Jesus. Now, at the time of Malachi, of course, they were still ahead of the cross. They didn't have the full picture that we have today. But it's clear that they're not shaped by God's love for them at all. They're not shaped by the fear of God, by that recognition that God is great, that recognition that He is the rightful ruler of our lives. They're offering dodgy sacrifices and then they're turning up their noses at the dodgy sacrifices that they themselves are offering. And the priests are letting them get away with it. At this point, frankly, I'm starting to wonder if the Israelites' future is as rosy and as hopeful as they're expecting. And it gets worse. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 11. Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. This beautiful temple, they've just rebuilt it, is not even a hundred years old. This is a temple where people come to worship him, the temple the Lord loves, and it's been desecrated. This would be like walking into the Louvre in Paris and throwing a bucket of black paint on Mona Lisa, pouring acid on one of Van Gogh's flower paintings or something. But what does Malachi mean here by marrying the daughter of a foreign god? That's the way the ESV translates it, if you're looking in the NIVs. That that sounds a bit off to us, doesn't it? It's xenophobic, racist even. Malachi is not concerned about the ethnicity of these brides. You look at Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. You look at Ruth, a Moabite widow. These two women... They both feature prominently in the genealogy of none other than Jesus Christ. Malachi's concern is not for who these women are, it's who these women are worshipping. And his big problem with it is that they are not worshipping God. If you've got an NIV translation, it actually spells that out explicitly from the start. The next problem in 2 verse 11, verse 14, is that the men of Judah aren't just marrying women from another religion. They're divorcing their Israelite wives to do so. 
Now, back in Deuteronomy, Moses wrote that divorce was allowed if there was unfaithfulness in the marriage. But these divorces, they weren't for serious issues like that. They were petty. Men of Judah, even the priests and the Levites, were divorcing their wives over things like burning the dinner. Now, I don't know everyone's story here, but I do know that in a room this big, there's going to be more than a few people who know the pain of divorce far more intimately than anyone should ever have to. That same pain, that's the kind of pain that God feels when we're unfaithful to Him. And it's why, it leads into why in verse 16, Malachi reminds us that God hates divorce. But that doesn't actually matter much to the Israelites, or so it seems. To the people Malachi was preaching to, unlike their response to God's claims of unfaithfulness, when it comes to their own grievances, they have a very, very keen sense of justice. To the point, in fact, that Malachi says at the end of chapter 2 in verse 17, that they have wearied God. How, they ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and He is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now, there isn't enough time today to go into the problem of evil and deal with that in depth. Suffice to say for now that just because non-Christians prosper, even some really vile, evil individuals, it doesn't mean that they're good in God's eyes. Just because justice doesn't happen on our preferred timing, doesn't mean that God's an unjust God. Now, these are really big topics, and if you want to talk about them later, I'd be happy to. Or you can grab Ross or Ben or Jayesh. You missed Jayesh's Reason for God session last week on the problem of evil, but come and catch us or catch one of the other elders and we'll be happy to talk about it later. But I mentioned earlier that the Israelites were very hopeful about a thing called the Day of the Lord. They've been expecting this for a long time now. This is a really big deal. This is really important to them. This is the day. This is the day when God is going to visit His people and make things right. Evil will be conquered. Justice will prevail. The Israelites are God's people, so that must mean He's coming to make things right for them, to strike down all their enemies, leading to a kingdom even greater than what David and Solomon ruled over. That's the sort of mindset that they had. That, that was their, their thinking at the time. So, with that mindset, and in the face of these complaints that God is distant and unjust and uncaring, how does God respond? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It's the first part of what Peter read to us earlier. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Well, now we're getting somewhere, right? Despite their troubles, the Lord is going to come. His day is coming and they're going to know it's coming. He's going to send a messenger to prepare the way. God is going to bring justice. He is going to fix the unrighteous, remove evil, Solve everyone's problems. Not so fast, says Malachi. Yes, he is going to do that, though maybe not in the way that they expected. So we need to keep reading past verse 1, read verses 2 to 4 as well. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. 
and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in the former years. Who can endure? Who can stand? Malachi's warning here is stark. The Lord is coming. He is coming to come to His temple and there will be a day of the Lord. But this is not the, the easy smite my enemies while I stand victorious sort of situation that the Israelites were expecting. Having the right family tree doesn't guarantee a smooth ride or a free pass to the righteous side. Malachi tells us that the day of the Lord is going to be hard. The returned exiles right at this point, they need a reality check on their hopefulness, their optimism that we spoke about before. Refining silver, if you're not familiar with it, that process needs temperatures approaching a thousand degrees to properly separate the silver from all the other contaminants and impurities that are around it. If you were doing a heavy load of laundry in Malachi's time, it didn't mean sticking an extra scoop of Omo in the washing machine. They used lye. Modern lye is a highly caustic hydroxide. Using it requires all sorts of health and safety precautions, but it's also very, very effective at bleaching dirty clothes back to white again. What's Malachi's point here? It's not a chemistry lesson. At the end of the day of the Lord, Malachi's point is that only the pure will be left, only the clean, and the purification process will not be easy. Who is the focus, though? That's where we get to chapter 3, verse 3. Save that one for a minute. The Levites, the spiritual leadership, that's the focus. Think about the shock that that would have been to Malachi's audience when he first said this. They've just been told that the day of the Lord isn't going to be this political, military victory over enemies far and wide that they'd been hoping for. Now they're told that first in line for it are the leaders, their own leaders, those same people that they've been sitting with and trusting and talking, going to to get advice. And again, there's something tragic about the fact that God needs to purify the Levites, the people whose lives revolved around the temple, the people whose lives were supposed to be all about bringing righteous, acceptable offerings to God. This is a great challenge for, to anyone in any sort of leadership role in the church, but especially to those of us who stand up and preach the Word. And it's mirrored, it's a challenge that is mirrored in the New Testament. James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Few know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, I think we're really blessed here at Southside that faithfully and correctly handling the, the Bible is a top priority. And not just for ben, Ross, Ben and Jayish, but for all the growth group leaders, the elders the whole broader leadership of the church, the staff and the volunteers, it's important all across the board there. Because that warning is clear. It's not that leaders are held to a higher standard, but they will certainly be the first to be judged against that standard. But despite that, in all of that, this is where we start to see our elements of hope. Because this is talking about purification, but not judgment. Not yet. The sequence is a little clearer in the ESV and it flows like this. Chapter 3, verse 3, He will purify the sons of Levi. Chapter 3, verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. So as hard as it's going to be, purification will, it will yield the desired outcome. Their offerings will be acceptable to God again. And only then, in verse 5, then there will be judgment. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, 
against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. See, part of the issue back at the end of chapter 2 was this implied accusation that God had changed somehow, that he was no longer the God who gave the law of Moses and that that must be why he's pleased with evildoers and why he is letting injustice go unpunished. God's response in chapter 3, verse 6, is irrefutable. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Generation after generation of Israelites had turned away from God. All the way back to the time of the judges, hundreds of years before David and what we showed there on the timeline earlier. They've been sinning against God and then reaping the consequences of that sin, repenting, being restored, rinse and repeat, again and again and again. But God hasn't changed. So what does that tell us about Him? The first thing it tells us about His character is that He's consistent. He still views evil and injustice the same as He did in the days of Moses, which means that in time there will be punishment. But the other big thing we see here, the great reason to start taking hope, is that God is patient. Because if God were not patient, then Israel would already be reaping the full judgment of her sins. But God is patient. He was patient during the time of the judges. He was patient when all the kings of Israel and Judah led their people astray. He patiently sent the prophets to warn his people again and again and gave them time to repent. For the people Malachi was speaking to directly, God was patient too. And you know what? Even today, even for us, God is still patient because he's the same God. He doesn't change. When Peter was writing his second letter, about 500 years after Malachi was written, he picked up on the same themes and he could write this. He wrote, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the God we worship. A God who keeps his promises and is also patient. For Malachi and the returned exiles, though, there were still two more of those little conversations, two more of that issues of that back and forth between God and the people. Because in his consistency and patience, God has also promised reconciliation between him and the people. But how, they ask, how can we return to God? The answer, in part, is in what we read earlier, in chapter 3, from verse 8. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask me, how, do we rob, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. The whole nation was cursed because they were holding out on God. The law, the Old Testament law, Moses, the, the book of five, the Pentateuch as it's called, it was clear. Bring your tithes and offerings to the temple. This was an integral part of worshipping God in the Old Testament. There was no way that you could call yourself a faithful Jew and not bring tithes and offerings. But the returned exiles, they're holding back. They're not giving everything. Some of them may not have been giving anything. Their act of worship, well, 
It wasn't worship. It was exactly that. It was an act. It would be like us sitting on our phones on posting on Facebook during a prayer or thinking about when you'll mow the lawn instead of listening to the Bible reading. Now, I'm as easily distracted as the next man and Katrina will testify to that, but what God wants from us in worship is to be wholehearted, committed, focused, wholehearted, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not holding anything back, not skimping. It's like your favourite sporting team. It's an old analogy, but you know, we're going to leave it all out on the field on game day. It's like a firefighter ready to rush into that burning building, that raging inferno and rescue someone even though he doesn't know where the person is or what beams might be moments away from collapsing. I know a police officer who was honoured with a bravery medal several years ago. An airplane had crashed in a remote area and he and his partner, they were the first to arrive. Fuel was leaking from the tank of the aircraft. The engine was still on. One spark, which was entirely possible with the engine still on like that, one spark would have been deadly for everyone. But he and his partner, that didn't stop them. They went in, they got the door open, they got people out. That's what wholehearted commitment is like. What this is not, just to be clear, going back to, to Malachi, this is not a demand for 10% of your income. For us, the New, the New Testament's focus is not on tithing, not on giving a strict tenth of everything you get, but on generosity. So us giving generously to God in response to His generosity to us. I think 10% is actually a pretty good starting point, but for each one of us, what generosity looks like is going to be different, and it's between us and God. This is also not a promise of material prosperity, because again, the New Testament is very clear that for us, even faithful, wholehearted Christians are going to face trials and troubles. God will bless our faithfulness, but not necessarily with lots of money or good health or anything else that we might be listing as a, yeah, I think that would be a nice blessing, thank you very much. And so it is that we come to the last conversation, chapter 3, verse 13. You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. This is pretty much a repeat of what the Israelites were saying back in chapter 2, verse 17, and that interchange. The Israelites are accusing God of inconsistency. But this time, this is different now, this time the penny drops. This time they get it. This time there is hope. In verse 16, those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured His name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. At last, finally, I'm sure someone else out there has sighed, as I was preparing the sermon, I was feeling the weight of the first three chapters build up and it was, getting, it was just getting unbearable. It almost felt like I'd had the wrong book. Where's the hope in all of this? You know, this, this sermon is titled, A Greater Hope. I wasn't seeing it, but here it is. This is where we have hope. Because here we see the hope of the Lord's salvation the hope that one day we will be part of God's treasured possession. And just to be clear, to be very, very clear, this is not a wishy-washy, oh, that would be really nice and I'd love that to happen, but I have no idea if it will kind of hope. 
That's not the hope that we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is hope that is certain, hope that is sure. We're talking about hope that is based in a God whom we've just seen is consistent and patient in His character and a God who does and will keep His promises. And so finally we come to chapter 4 of Malachi and we wrap up with a return to this theme of the day of the Lord. And yes, it, it will be a day of fire, burning like a furnace, Malachi says in verse 1, for the arrogant and the evildoer. But check out as well verse 2, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. You will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Now, there's something beautiful and, and uplifting and refreshing when you see the morning sun after a stormy night, don't you think? God promises that. He promises that the day of the Lord will feel like that. That last phrase, frolicking like well-fed calves. Some translations uh, interpret it as leaping like calves released from a stall. Have you ever seen an animal doing that? A calf or a, or a lamb released from a gate? What about a puppy released from its lead? They just, they go absolutely nuts. They can't contain their joy and excitement. My mother-in-law has a little dog called Molly. And sometimes when she gets home from a, work, a walk and that lead is unclipped, Molly will just tear up and down the stairs, round and round, back and forth, trying to get to every single room in the house in less than 30 seconds. It's a burst, uh, just a, an outburst of pure, unbridled joy. Think about examples from your own life. One that I thought of was back at school in woodworking class. We were doing some vacuum moulding with an acrylic to make a money box. Mine just wouldn't work. Trying again and again, and I just couldn't get the shape right. It collapsed in the middle and things like that. Finally, I got it into the right shape. I was so happy. I was hopping and jumping and almost a little dance in front of everyone in the classroom. Being a classroom full of 14-year-old boys, I was mocked mercilessly afterwards. But the point is that I didn't matter. I didn't care. It didn't matter. I was, just, I was so happy that I'd gotten it to work. And for those of us who trust in God, for all of us, if we've repented from our sins, the day of the Lord is going to be that day of such healing, such renewal, such joy, that we can't contain ourselves. So if you need a reason to be optimistic or to be hopeful about the future, well, in Christ, that's what we have. It doesn't matter what politicians are in power if we're in Christ. It doesn't matter if the economy is going up or down. We can go out today with a hope for the future that is rock steady and utterly reliable, no matter what's going on outside around us. And in verse 5, there's one last promise from our faithful God. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. God promised Elijah. He promised a prophet who would set about restoring relationships and preparing people not just for restored relationships with each other, but for a restored relationship with God. Now, spoiler alert, God did send that prophet in the form of John the Baptist, but I think there's going to be more said on that in the next couple of weeks, so I'm going to leave that there. We started Malachi with the Israelites hoping for the day of the Lord. They were hoping for a political and a military solution, a, a tangible, 
in this life, this world now, solution to their problems. What we found was that the people weren't ready for the day of the Lord. In their heads, maybe they thought they were, but not in their hearts, not in their relationship with God. But what we saw is that God is consistent, God is patient, God is faithful to keep his promises. And as Malachi comes to a close, as God draws the curtain on that part of the history covered by the Old Testament, we see the promise that for believers, for those of us who trust in God for our salvation, for those of us who will live with God as our rightful king and ruler, there is a hope. There is a hope of Elijah, a hope of that messenger coming to prepare the way for the Lord. A hope for the day of the Lord as a day to welcome rather than a day to hear, fear. This is not a new hope. This is an old hope revived and remembered. And this is not a false hope, but a sure and a certain hope which we see unfold in all its glorious majesty in the Gospels. This is not by any means a small hope. This is a greater hope, greater than anything else at all. Let's pray. Lord God, you are our hope. You are our refuge. And we can do nothing but come in humble thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, the way he lived his life and died on the cross for us, so we can have this hope. Lord, we pray you would reach into our hearts to build up that hope and remind us how great it is. We pray you would sustain our hope, even in the hard times, especially, Lord, in the hard times. We pray you would strengthen us to share our hope in you, the greatest hope of all. In Jesus' name, amen.